Sam, how many cows does it take to produce 753 pounds of butter? I don't know, Ellen. How many? (laughs) And why is this relevant? I don't know, Ellen. It's a weird question. Who's gonna tell us the stories that our textbooks don't... I'm Ellen. And I'm Sam. And we're just here to cause chaos. (laughs) I like that one. That was good. (laughs) Thank you. I like to do overly dramatic versions. I know you do. (laughs) Uh, Ellen. Yes, Sam? I took a midterm today. Gross. You know, sometimes I think about the fact that if you told 10-year-old me that I was still taking midterms and math tests and homework, she'd be sad. (laughs) Honestly... Any math over 10, unnecessary. Dude, I was literally a math teacher for a while. Yeah, and was it necessary? If you want to engineer stuff. Hmm, that sounds fake. (laughs) You know, and you call yourself an engineer. But I am, though. Who else would help those hospitals... I don't know. They ask me a lot of questions and I never know the answer. It's fantastic. Do either of us know what you do for a living? I'm getting better at it. Okay. Well, Ellen, you want to know who else didn't know what they did for a living for a very long time? I don't know. Julia Child. Oh, what a segue! (laughs) (laughs) It felt good. It felt good to segue. Even though we both totally ruined it. Yeah, that that was better than some of my segues. It was better than all of your segues, Ellen. <laughs> we haven't even started this episode. I'm still pla- I'm already trying to plan mine. <laughs> well, don't do that because you need to pay attention to me. Okay, I am so focused. Sam, tell me about Julia Child. I will. Now, these are notes that I did according to Google Docs 10 days ago, so I'm going to learn with you because a lot has happened in 10 days and I don't remember. The past. I had a midterm today, that's my excuse. (laughs) (laughs) So, Julia McWilliams was born on August 15th, 1912 in Pasadena, California. Ooh, Sam, you're from California. I am. And Pasadena's like one of the smaller cities next to LA where people from there will say they're from LA even though they're not. So like, I actually know where Pasadena is. Wow. Yeah. Her father's name was John McWilliams Jr. And he graduated from Princeton and was a real estate investor. So their family was loaded. And her mother was Julia Carolyn Weston, which is like such a regal name. And she was the heiress to a paper company and the daughter of the former lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. Huh. Yeah. I did not expect these origins. <laughs> no, have you ever, like, heard of the Weston Paper Company? They're, like, one of the biggest paper companies. No, but I believe that they are a very large paper company. Well, yeah. That's her family. Julia Child, well, at this point, Julia McWilliams, uh, was the eldest of three siblings and people in her childhood referred to her as Juke, Juju, and Dukies, which I just thought were such cute little names. That is adorable. Right? And, as I previously mentioned, her family was loaded. 
So she went to like this very elite San Francisco primary school called the Catherine Branson School for Girls, which is like to this day like a very fancy like finishing school kind of. Yeah, get that education, girl. Yeah. And she was also a giant child. So, as in very large? Like, she was six foot two by like halfway through high school. She was six foot two? Yeah. What? <laughs> and like, she got to that height pretty young. No one told me Julia Child was that tall. I feel like that's a very well known fact about her. How tall is Gordon Ramsay and who would win in a fight? I don't know how tall Gordon Ramsay is. That was not my job for today. Well, Sam, come on. Yeah, no. She played basketball in high school because at six foot two, I think you're like legally required to. Yeah. Uh, in case you were wondering, Gordon Ramsay is also six foot two, so their fight would be inconclusive. Oh, that's a fair fight, though. Gordon Ramsay. I have my priorities straight, Sam. <laughs> I'm glad. <clears throat> she was a giant, and she was also considered a little bit wild. And, like, a very fun child, she was adventurous and athletic, and she was, like, all the adjectives that you use to describe a kid who, like, makes their parents want to pull their hair out, but, like, in a cute way. Amazing. What a great beginning for our young right? spy. She was also particularly talented at golf, tennis, and small game hunting, because I feel like those are the most rich person sports you can play. Of course. Still mad about the golf lobby. <laughs> They're partly responsible for daylight savings time. I'm pretty sure I told you that fact, and then you texted it to me and tried to pretend like you found it out for yourself. Okay, I don't remember you telling it, but that is the kind of thing you would know and then tell me. <laughs> okay, back to Julia Child, because you can already <laughs> tell this is not going to be an on-topic episode. None of them are. In 1930, Julia enrolled at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Fun fact- I asked my mom what Smith was the other day because I hadn't heard of it and a new friend of mine in grad school went there and my mom was like really excited. She was like, oh, that's the Harvard for girls. So I think it's a very good school then. Sounds like it. Yeah. In fact, it might be better than Harvard if it's for girls. Yeah. It's pretty much just like a really good all girls school if my mom is to be believed, which I think she's right about most things. So She is very wise. Yeah. While she was at Smith, she majored in history. She said she wanted to become a writer at the time, but she was never actually published. She wrote a bunch of short plays and submitted them to the New Yorker, but like her heart wasn't in it. She went to Smith because her mom and her aunt both were Smith alums, so it was like a lot of nepotism. Writing just isn't a adventurous job enough for her. No. She just didn't know what she wanted to be yet. You can't keep Julia Child behind a desk. Yeah. At one point during this time, she said, I am sadly an ordinary person with talents I do not use. Oof. Yep. Is she okay? She hadn't found her passion yet. But while she was... <laughs> this is just a fun fact that I really enjoyed. While she was at Smith, she was active in the Grass Cops, which was a group who tried to keep students off the lawn. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Georgia Tech tried so hard. So hard. They put up all these signs that were like, please don't step on the grass. And then they tried to like get cute with it. They put up like, the grass is sleeping, like leave it alone. And you know People what we did? People would kick the signs <laughs> to walk on the grass. 
Pythagorean theorem, the hypotenuse is shorter than the sum of the two sides. It was faster. <laughs> okay. 1935. Julia got a job in New York. She had gone back to California for like a minute after she graduated college, but pretty quickly she went to New York, where she worked at the advertising department of a home furnishings company called W&J Sloan. It sounds lame. Yeah. She had really briefly taken a course on how to become a secretary, but quit after like a month of this course because she got a job as a secretary. Good for her. Now when's she going to quit this job? <laughs> well, she doesn't quit this job. In 1939, they transfer her to the LA office, and then very shortly after, she was fired for what they called gross insubordination. Good. <laughs> From what I could tell, this was really just, like, a big mix-up of document filing that she was doing really badly at. Oh, that's not even exciting. No. <laughs> but this brings us to 1941, World War II. <gasps> well, it's not the Great War. It's not the Great War. But, you know, it goes pretty well for Julia Child. It's true. Let's get into it, finally. Yes. So at the beginning of the war, she became a very active participant in the Pasadena Red uh, chapter of the Red Cross. And so this was about three months before the U.S. officially entered the war is when she took a job with the Pasadena chapter of the Red Cross. And at this time, she also started working for the Aircraft Warning Service, which is a civilian branch of the Army that is tasked with monitoring enemy aircraft when they enter U.S. airspace. So it was kind of like her beginning of the war origin story. The U.S. officially entered the war and she wanted to join the army, but she was rejected from both the woman accepted for volunteer emergency service branch, which is like the female ambulance drivers, and the women armies corp, which I don't really know what they do, but it was another like branch of the official army that women could be in. But she was rejected from both of them for being too tall. What? For being too tall? Yeah. I was about to say, this is a six-foot-two icon of a woman who has a degree from one of the best schools in the country. Yeah, but she was six-foot-two. They wouldn't do this to Gordon Ramsay. No, they wouldn't. <laughs> in 1942, she moved to D.C. and began working as a research assistant with the Office of Strategic Services, also known <gasps> as the OSS. <gasps> She really wanted to become more active in the war effort, and so when she first moved to D.C., she actually started working as a research assistant for the Office of War Information, but the OSS actually poached her. Nice. Finally, she's getting some recognition. Yeah, no. They were like, oh, this one seems like a good idea. <laughs> she played a very key role in communicating top secret documents between U.S. officials and intelligence officers all over the world. And she got to travel a lot. She went to Kunming, China, and Colombo, Sri Lanka, and a little bit of India. I couldn't really figure out exactly where in India. But in 1944 and 1945, she was the, like, official intelligence files, like, keeper of the OSS in Sri Lanka. And she was the chief of the OSS registry in Ceylon. Single-handedly holding together the OSS... Nice. Yeah, she, like, personally handled the paperwork for the invasion of the Malay Peninsula. Ooh. Right? 
And then in 1946, she was moved to China, where she was stationed in Kunming. And while she was there, she learned that she really liked food. (gasps) That's going to come up later. It is. And, you know, we're just going to get into her time in the OSS for a minute, because I've got a question for you, Ellen. Was Julia Child a spy? Yes! (laughs) So, we're going to get into it, and, like, what she actually did for them, because, like... She was a confirmed intelligence officer who worked overseas during World War II under a office that pretty much is the equivalent to our modern-day CIA. Knew it. She began her career with them as a research assistant, but worked her way up the ladder all the way to the chief of the region. And what she is actually most well-known for in her time in the OSS was her very first published recipe. Aww. She developed a recipe for shark repellent. (gasps) She made shark repellent? Yeah. Batman would be so proud. Right? (laughs) And this shark repellent was so good that they used it in the U.S. Navy until the 1970s. Man, how did she know what sharks didn't like? So, in the beginning of World War II, there was a suspicious number of shark attacks against U.S. Navy officers. And sharks kept setting off the explosive traps they would set for their enemies, and so they, like, really needed to figure out something to do with all of these sharks. And so, Julia Child herself did a year worth of field tests in recipe development and figured out that copper acetate was the best shark repellent. I had no idea sharks were such a big problem in World War II. What? Right? But you know why they weren't as big of a problem? Because... Of Julia Child. Amazing. Julia Child was one of only 4,500 women employed by the OSS in World War II. And, like, the OSS is kind of the same idea as, like, what Peggy Carter did in Agent Carter. This just in. Julia Child is Peggy Carter. I think so. I mean, I, I really liked Peggy Carter. I was, like, physically upset when they did make a third season, so. Sorry. Thanks. From what I can tell, her, like, real position was she was pretty much a handler. She recorded names, transmitted documents, like, kind of was the in-between man between the agency and field agents. That's basically a spy. Yeah, I think she wasn't, like, what we think of as, like, an active spy in, like, a movie, but she was more of, like, if you've seen any James Bond movie, she was, like, a Q or an M character. She's Coulson. Yeah, she's Coulson. There we go. It's all making sense now. I am, like, saying my opinions, and we're gonna say allegedly because I don't want Julia Child's estate to sue us, but, like, she was a spy. Okay. (laughs) And during her time as a spy, she met another agent. (gasps) Did they fall in love? They did. His name was Paul Child. (gasps) I can see where this is going. Yeah, they met when they were working for the OSS in India, and they began dating in 1945 while on a mission in Sri Lanka. Adorable. So romantic. Right? And then post-war, in 1946, they got married. (gasps) I know. I really like Paul. Paul is, like, high on my standable husband's list. (laughs) I'm just gonna put that out there now so you can be, like, a huge fan of Paul, too. Okay. So, after the war, the couple returned to the States, and Paul began working for the U.S. Foreign Service. Ooh. And so I'm gonna go into a little bit why we stand Paul so much. First off, he was shorter than her. I mean, when you're six foot two, 
most people are but you've got to be secure in your masculinity to like be cool with that and we appreciate you paul (laughs) also julia once said about him in an interview that he was her personal dishwasher official photographer mushroom dicer and onion chopper editor manager idea man resident poet and porter which is just like adorable he does it all he does it all the ideal man full service husband right there also, both Paul and Julia always throughout their marriage said they considered themselves a team. Aww. And Julia really believed that like the role of a woman at the time was to find the best man they could and get married and make a nice home and kind of like follow their passions through the ability of like the relationship. Okay. Which like I guess might have been progressive for like the forties. <laughs> we stand Paul. We love Paul. <laughs> He really enabled her. And in 1948, Paul was stationed in Paris at the U.S. Embassy. (gasps) Paris? Paris. I heard they have some good food there. They do. So let the cooking begin. It's so much more fun when I know something about the person. (laughs) Yeah, because then I'm just telling you, like, new facts, like the shark repellent, and I'm not just, like, (laughs) revealing like, whole pieces of information, like, last week when you didn't know Matahari was an exotic dancer. I'm just blindsided. <laughs> Punch me in the face with your words. Ah, uh, that's my favorite thing to do, Ellen. I know. Although, if you're worried, <clears throat> I caused Sam plenty of psychic damage by telling her news that upsets her greatly. <laughs> Ellen is sometimes my main source of news, like, especially around midterms or finals when I don't have time to, like, read. Ellen just texts me, like, psychic damage. (laughs) Did you know BTS spoke at the UN? That's right. The K-pop group. I guess anyone just gets to talk at the UN now. Okay, Julia Child. (laughs) Oh, back to that, yeah. (laughs) Because I don't know enough about BTS to even try and talk about them. Yeah, they got butter, dynamite, all bops. Cool. I definitely have heard of those songs. Just just tell me about Julia Child. I will, because you know what? She enrolled in the famous cooking school, the Cordon Bleu. Ooh. She, when she got to France, she fell in love with the food. She, there, she was like, there is butter, there is deliciousness, this is awesome. I want to cook with like 10 bottles of wine and a million pads of butter and call it a day. It's true. The butter thing comes up a lot. Yeah, she really likes butter. (laughs) But she enrolled in the six-month-long Le Cordon Bleu course, and it was, like, the course for professionals, because they had two courses at the school. There was, like, the one for housewives and the one for for professionals, and she was like, you know what? I'm going to take the professional one. And she nailed it. Good for her. And her course included private lessons with a master chef named Max Bourneur, who became a big fan of hers. I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. And while she was in cooking school, she met Simone Beck and Louisette Bertolt. You know what? I'm doing okay here. (laughs) One day we're going to have a story without French. You know what? That's going to be a great day. (laughs) (laughs) The three women together created their own cooking school, L'École des Trois Gourmands, also known as the School of the Three Gourmands. Oh my god, that's so cute. Right? And the three women started working together to publish a cookbook 
aka Mastering the Art of French Cooking in 1961. And you might have heard of Mastering the Art of French Cooking because it's on every single woman over the age of 50s bookshelf. It's true. It took them about 10 years to test and perfect all the recipes in the book. And it was kind of the first time that French cooking and techniques were accessible to American audiences. So it was a huge hit. It put Julia on the public main stage for the very first time. And it even remained on the best-selling cookbook list for five straight years. Oh my god. Right? And this is a two-volume cookbook. Like, it's huge. Two-volume cookbook. How'd that go? (laughs) Yeah. So she wrote this best-selling cookbook with her two, like, girlfriends. And it was all going great in Paris. And it seemed like they were never going to leave. But then Paul's position got moved from the U.S. Embassy, and the child ended up returning to the States and settling in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's so rude. I know. Of the U.S. government. And there was, like, a little bit of intrigue around his getting moved. Like, one source said that it might have been he was under investigation for some of his spy things in the war because Paul probably was actually, like, what we think of as a spy movie spy. Well, wait, if Julia Child was essentially a handler, oh, that's even more romantic. I know, right? (laughs) But yeah, so it's possible that he was under a little bit of investigation, but like no charges were ever filed and all was good. So, but they had to move back to America. And now I can just have a nice quiet life of chopping onions for his wife. I know, he's so sweet. (laughs) And around the time they got back to the U.S., Julia was approached by TV executives about a cooking show. Her very first TV appearance was on WGBH in Boston, where she made an omelet. And they loved her. (laughs) The best goddamn omelet you've ever seen. Honestly, yeah. They were like, she is witty. She's got like a sharp tongue. She's hilarious. Everyone was into it. They were like, oh, she's making this like, French omelet style cooking because like making a French omelet's really hard and she was like making it look easy and like making it look like something that anyone could do and it was like a very big deal is the French omelet the one where you have to like wait for the egg to like slowly cook and then you slowly roll it up and it takes forever yes. and it's not even that good yes but it's pretty good <laughs> okay fine so after this the tv execs were like we've got a winner here And The French Chef premiered on PBS in 1963, which is like her famous show that she's known for. And it's on PBS. She deserves the public broadcasting. Everyone should have access. (laughs) The French Chef would go on to air for over- for a decade. Wow. Yeah. Julia Child became a household name, like very quickly. She won a Peabody Award for television broadcasting in 1965 and an Emmy Award in 1966. She won an Emmy? Yeah. Had no idea. I know, right? She ended up being known for her forthright manner and her hearty humor. People also really liked her what-the-hell attitude. She was kind of fearless in the kitchen, so she would do anything. She would just, like, throw the live lobster into the pot, like, break through the backbone with a chicken. She was just like, you can do it, I can do it, we can all do it, whatever. Yay. That's kind of like me, except with adding paprika to everything. Yep. I think you and her would get along very well as long as you didn't tell her how you cooked, just the (laughs) attitude with which you cooked. (laughs) 
I think it'd go fine. So originally at the beginning of the broadcast, she was making $50 per show, which in like the 1960s isn't bad. But she's an international superstar by this point. When did, what did she end up making? I don't actually know. Oh, I'm sure it was a lot of money. Yeah, I'm sure she made bank by the end. <laughs> Over the course of these 10 years, she changed the way Americans related to food. She, like, because of her, everyone believed they could cook. And, like, a lot of people learned. She, she made it very accessible to learn how to cook. That's great. What were people doing beforehand? I mean, beforehand, it was a lot of, like, what you consider American cooking. Like, kind of flavorless casseroles and, you know, stuff like that. Gross. Yeah. No, she made, like, kind of fancy, fun cooking accessible to people. Good. We deserve it. Yeah. And her show ended up being syndicated on 96 stations around America. What? Right? That's like so many stations. But I have like no context for- Like, I obviously that's a lot, but like, how many were other shows syndicated on? I mean, it's really hard for shows to get syndicated because that means that it's like being played every day. Oh. I assumed you knew what syndicated mean. I don't know why I assumed that about you. This is an- I mostly watch YouTube by this point, okay? <laughs> the word syndicated doesn't come up. <laughs> okay, syndicated means it's being played every day, so I'm saying it was being played every day on 96 stations across America. And that's awesome. And, like, think about the fact that there's 50 states, and probably each state has their own PBS channel, but that means it was being played on more than just the PBS channels. She also, during this time, became a regular on Good Morning America. <laughs> Yeah, my mom really likes Good Morning America. Is your mom a fan of Julia Child? My mom is the biggest fan of Julia Child. <laughs> like, I really like Julia Child. My mom really likes Julia Child. See, when I suggested this, I had no idea that Sam apparently is low-key obsessed with Julia Child, so... <laughs> Joke's on you. I have seen the movie Julia and Julia so many times. It was a... Weird obsession of mine for a while. So ain't that something. We are going to talk about that movie near the end of this. I'm worried. I can quote most of it. Okay. But back to where we are in the story. Julia Child would go on to publish a bunch more cookbooks and make a bunch more shows because of course she did. She put out the second volume of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. She had a show called Julia's Kitchen with Master Chef in 1995 she had another show called baking with julia in 1996 and fun fact during the filming of baking of julia she used 753 pounds of butter i'm sorry what during the filming of a short-lived like one or two year series called baking with julia she made she used 753 pounds of butter how many cows does that require? I don't know. Oh, I'm gonna do some useless math right now. Okay, you enjoy that while I tell you a little bit more about books and shows she made. Okay. I really should have labeled these better because I don't know which of these are books and which are shows. <laughs> <laughs> 1998, I want to say she published a book called Julia's Delicious Little Dinners, and then in 99, she made Julia's Casual Dinners. She also published an autobiography posthumously in 2006 called My Life in France, and posthumously 
means that she had already passed away and like her descendants published it. Okay, I know what that means. That comes up in YouTube. Our listeners might not. Okay, fine. She also made a show in 1978 called Julia Child and Company. And in 1980 called Julia Child and More Company. <laughs> um, and then 1983 called Dinner at Julia's. I'm just listing at this point. Ooh, but what my mom's favorite show is when she was younger was, was Julia Child and Jacques Pepin Cooking at Home. Which won a daytime Emmy. Wow. Yeah. Alright, Sam, can you please tell me again how many pounds of butter? We're about to do some dumb math. 753 pounds of butter. That's so much bigger than I remember it. (laughs) Okay. 753 pounds of butter times 21.2 pounds of milk it takes to make a pound of butter... As I just learned. And then, oh my god, that's already a large number. Apparently, an average cow produces six to seven gallons of milk per day. So we're gonna divide that by 6.5 to give us a total of 2,456 cows. And it, well, like... It was all all the cows made one day's worth of milk. Yeah, if we do this over one day. But again, this was a short-lived series. <laughs> okay. I think we all needed to know that. Can you say that number one more time for me? 2,456 cows. Good for Julia Child. <laughs> Alright, what what were we talking about? Because I completely forgot. I had just finished listing all of her shows and books and realized that I had not labeled which ones were shows and which ones were books and kind of guessed. I'm so proud. <laughs> Thanks. A lot of viewers of her shows, or not even a lot, but some viewers of her shows criticized her for not washing her hands very much. <laughs> and they called her kitchen demeanor and safety bad. You know what? Listen, kitchen demeanor, kitchen safety, are those really what's important in life? Well, I mean, she was known for doing things like snapping bones, playing with raw meat, like, like, to hell with it attitude. But some people found that revolting and they felt the need to tell her that. And Julia clapped back because she did not care what they said about her. She said they were overly sanitary and she couldn't stand them. (laughs) She would slap them with raw meat if they dared to tell this to her face. Yeah. Also, some viewers were really concerned about the large quantity of fat she cooked with and that she used in her French cooking. To this, Julia suggested they eat in moderation. And at one point famously said, I would rather eat one tablespoon of chocolate rousse cake than three bowls of jello. Which, you know what? Same. (laughs) She is just a queen. Like, everything that comes out of her mouth was perfect. See, but that is a good point. But also, so much butter! (laughs) Oh, I'm glad I told you that fact. In 1981, Julia co-founded the American Institute of Wine and Food. She also created the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and Culinary Arts in 1995. And she'd received a lot of honorary doctorates. She was one of those people that, like, every school wanted to, like, get their name on. 
So she had an honorary doctorate from Harvard and Brown and like a bunch of other smaller schools, but those were the two the most impressive. Dr. Child, I like it. Yeah. She also became the first woman to be inducted into the Culinary Institute Hall of Fame in November 2000. In 2002, the Smithsonian, like the Smithsonian <laughs> National Museum of American History, one of my favorite museums in the world, created an entire exhibit featuring her kitchen. Like the one she used from the TV show. She had a whole exhibit? Yeah. They called it a key piece of American culture. I mean, it is. I agree. <laughs> she even, she got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from George Bush in 2003. What? Yeah. <laughs> it just, these are like two different eras colliding in my mind. Well, one happened in 2002 and one happened in 2003. That's not what I meant, and you know that. I don't know what you meant. I really thought that's what you meant. It's like when you learn that Anne Frank and Martin Luther King were born in the same year. What? Yeah. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> I think of Julia Child and George Bush as in two separate parts of history. <laughs> I see what you mean now. There we go. <laughs> Julie Child did pass away on August 13th, 2004, of kidney failure. No. Which I actually remember, and I remember being <laughs> sad about. What? I do not. Her name at this point was synonymous with good food and quality home cooking. And at this point, she was mere days away from her 92nd birthday. Aww. So, like, clearly all that fat hadn't hurt too much. I guess not. Like, she lived to 92. She was fine. She ate 753 pounds of butter. Guess she ate in moderation? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At one point in an interview, like, near the end of her life, she claimed her long life was due to red meat and gin. <laughs> so you know what's saying. <gasps> She's always an icon. Yeah. And during her life, she survived breast cancer. And became a very active advocate for women who had mastectomies, which is like when you get your boobs cut off because you have cancer. In 2014, the U.S. Postal Service gave her a stamp. <gasps> She's part of the Celebrity Chefs Forever series. Okay, wait, no, this is like my favorite fact. So there is a rose that is approximately the color of melted butter and is named after her. <laughs> Her love of butter lives on. Right? <laughs> she really liked butter. <laughs> and on what would have been her 100th birthday in 2012, fine dining establishments all across the United States honored her with Julia Child Restaurant Week, where they all made recipes from her book and put it on their menus for the week. That's so sweet. Right? And now, in 2009... They made a movie. Oh no. Called Julie and Julia. Uh-huh. In which Meryl Streep plays Julia Child and Amy Adams plays a struggling young woman who found herself by cooking a recipe a day from Julia Child's cookbook and making a blog about it. <laughs> That's the plot? <laughs> yes. And this is a real thing that happened. The girl's name was Julie Powell, and she actually made this blog, and it got, like, really big on the internet. And they even ended up asking Julia Child about what she thought of it in an interview, and she was like, I I don't feel this, pretty much. Aww. Yeah. But 
kind of the movie like does a side by side of their lives where they like look at Julia Child like whole life like from when she got married pretty much until like when she I mean she hadn't died at the time of the like the movie was set in but like pretty much from her like her whole career and Meryl Streep did an amazing job she won a golden globe <laughs> she was nominated for an Oscar like she she was prime Meryl Streep in this movie yeah I mean saying Meryl Streep did an amazing job is like saying ah the sky's blue but like it's such a good movie Alan I can't believe you haven't seen it <laughs> Put it on the list. Like, it's so good. <laughs> and you, like, the reason I stand Paul as much as I do is because Stanley Tucci played him in the movie, and it's adorable. <laughs> like, him and Meryl Streep do such a good job. Everyone should watch this movie. I went through a phase, and I watched it, like, so many times, and to this day, if I ever, like, see it on TV or something, like, I have to click on it. <laughs> Maybe that's what we'll do when I visit you for New Year's. Yes. That's a great plan. So, now that that's concerning in my future. Quote well? Yeah, tell me some quotes, Sam. Okay. First off, I gotta get my quote voice on. I was 32 when I started cooking. Up until then, I just ate. <laughs> Which I think is an inspirational quote to all 20-somethings that feel like they need to have their lives together because... Julia Child did not even try to cook French food until she was 32. So you know what? Anyone can do it. I'm gonna try to cook French food. Sure you can. Way to discount the message of this story, Sam. Everyone can cook. You can cook, Ellen. I believe in you. I cook for 10 people regularly. Yeah, well, you also used to cook for me by, like, just throwing vegetables into boiling water. Yeah, that's how you cook them. Okay. <laughs> Julie Child said. <laughs> a party without a cake is just a meeting. <laughs> Which you know what? I want to put on a wall. Like, I feel like that used to go on my wall. And then, I think every woman should have a blowtorch. I mean, I agree. Same. People who love to eat are always the best people. <laughs> it is hard to imagine a civilization without onions. Yeah. With enough butter, anything is good. And then she added to that a little amendum, which said, if you're afraid of butter, use cream. <laughs> Find something you're passionate about and keep tremendously inter interested in it. I mean, I like this advice, but at the same time, my undiagnosed ADHD is like, <laughs> keep interest? Oh. Yeah, I don't think Julia Child had undiagnosed ADHD. Good for her. Always remember, if you're alone in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can always just pick it up. Who's going to know? <laughs> I enjoy cooking with wine. Sometimes I even put it in the food, which is how I cook. <laughs> I personally identify with that statement. <laughs> I'm going to ask Jackie to paint that on the canvas so I can put it in my kitchen. Great idea. Ask her to paint the cake meeting quote, too. Oh, that's a good idea. Jackie, if you're listening to this, I've got a request. <laughs> okay. Nothing you ever learn is really wasted and will sometime be useful. Which, you know, I feel like I learned a lot of stuff in college and I, I don't think it's all going to be useful. How'd she have so many quotes? She is legendary. I had to, like, 
I read through like a million of them and I just picked my favorites and I only have one more. But you know what? It was hard to pick. I wanted to read all of them. I know this is more quotes than I usually do, but they were just all good. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for the last quote? Yes, hit me. The only time to eat diet food is while you're waiting for the steak to cook. <laughs> Fantastic. Julia Child is my spirit animal. I love her so much. <laughs> my mom loved her. I love her. She's great. Julia and Julia is a great movie. Everyone should watch it. Meryl Streep is an icon. Julia Child is an icon. Paul is a sustainable husband. This was a great story and I have no complaints. It's the most you fangirled so far. I love Julia Child. Okay. I think the only real fangirl more than this is when I eventually do Eleanor Roosevelt. She's also an icon. Well, Sam, you know how... Paul is a stannable husband. Yes. So, unfortunately, we can't all be handlers who fall in love with their brave spies. So, sometimes we have to use other ways of beating people. Like, for instance, personal ads. Honestly, Ellen, good job. That was a <laughs> solid transition. I am proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. They're gonna get better. Maybe. So, we're gonna talk about some of the highlights of personal advertisements and their history, and also take a nice sidestep into gay code. I'm so excited right now. Just you so everyone be. knows, Ellen the other day sent me the link to a academic research paper and was like, can you download this for me because I have academic access as a university student. Ellen does not anymore because she went to get a real job. A corporate sellout. Yeah. And so she read an academic research paper about this. And it was wild. It went for, it took a left, like a hard left turn. It it's was talking about the history of gay personal ads and then hard switch into the evils of capitalism. And I'm like, yes, but at the same time, where is this going? And then it spent a whole page discussing why people call their boyfriends daddy. It's like, I don't need any of this. I didn't even know I was gonna go there. No one did! Oh my god, I can't wait for you to tell me about this. Also, if the University of California San Diego asks, I did not illegally um, give out information about academic research papers. Is that how it works? I don't think I'm supposed to share those, but it's okay. The internet won't tell on me. Fascinating. So, first personal ads were satirical. They were jokes. That's fun. And we're talking like 1600s. <laughs> Like, 1691, there was a, there were entire catalogs of satirical ads for husband and wives for entertainment. Apparently, at one point, Benjamin Franklin printed a satirical marriage ad. <laughs> like, that Benjamin Franklin. That's amazing! So, there were a few genuine ones, though. Uh, even as back as July 19th, 19th, wait... 1695. 1690. Were there newspapers in 1690? Was there a printing press in 1695? It was a weekly pamphlet 
published by a guy named John Hoyton, who is an apothecary. Was there a printing press, though? I need to know. I think so. I am looking this up. Okay. You keep talking. <laughs> Essentially, personal ads were considered jokes. They were considered people desperate for money. But this all changed. When the Civil War happened. Do, do, do. Yes, the Civil War changed many things. But we're not gonna focus on that. When was the printing press invented was on my previously searched list. When did you search this? I don't know. I just needed you to know that it was there. And also it was invented in 1436. So like they had it in 1690 whenever they made this version pamphlet. God, don't you know your medieval history, Sam? You know what? I actually know a surprising amount of it. The Civil War. It's a whole thing. So there's a bunch of lonely men fighting. And they're like, I will do anything to talk to a woman. So like engineering students? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so they start like posting personal ads being like, please write me a letter. And it became like a patriotic act for women to write back. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> However, a lot of military men did form, and the correspondents did form romantic relationships. They fell in love, Sam. Okay, less sad. A little bit sad. It's like sad in the same way people meet you on Tinder and like getting married is. That's kind of the point of this entire... After that, personal ads just continued to grow. They became more common, more popular. There was also slowly a switch between just marriage to, like, just companionship. Or just, like, please, write me a letter. I'm so lonely. <laughs> Obviously, you're wondering. But Sam, where were the gay people in all of this? Well, I'm wondering, but Ellen, where are the gay people in all this? Fine. <laughs> so, there is a magazine called The Hobby Directory, and it was supposedly intended to connect men and boys with shared interests. Oh no. But it was really the world's weirdest dating service. Oh, they had to have seen that coming. <laughs> They, they don't know if the guy who, like, created the magazine, how much he knew. Because, apparently, he did apparently really like hobbies. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> okay, so this was founded in 1946 by Francis Willard Ewing. Now... The guy really liked hobbies. However, he may have been complicit in all of this, you know, secret dating service. Because at one point, he printed a notice in his article, uh, in his newspaper, chastising members for lying about their age, <gasps> deceiving members who wish to correspond only with members of similar age for purposes such as Quote, photo sharing photos of young men in service <laughs> uniforms <laughs> or <laughs> memorabilia related to boys famous in history. <laughs> Alan! I know. 
And we can definitely do your best hyperfixation yet. (laughs) (laughs) So, here were some of the ways that the gay men would let it be known that that's what they're looking for. There were some coded references to physical culture, which such as sunbathing and wrestling, because that's not suspicious. <laughs> and there would also be like more quote unquote feminine professions, such as be saying you're a florist or a nurse. Men can be florists and nurses. Yes. Exactly, but this is the fifties, Sam. Let men be nurses. <laughs> okay. The, they were saying they were. Shouldn't be gay slang. It's a very respectable profession. Alright. And then there is the ever-present collects photos of physical activities. <clears throat> I don't know why this was such a popular code, but it is. I mean, it's saying exactly what you want. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna read some. So, Robert Cabajal, then his address, age 19, high school grad, collects and exchanges photos of physical activities. Imagine, like, living in a society where you can just put your home address in the newspaper. (laughs) His desired correspondence would be other such collectors, weightlifters, and athletic models. You know what? I would like some athletic models, too. Thank you very much. Don't we all? Here's another one. Southwestern California, age 26, receiving clerk, high school education, interests, all phases of the theater, horticulture, interior decorating, physical culture, art, music of all types, and photography, collects photos of physical activities, army, three years, ten months, desired correspondence, those of kindred interests. That's, like, so aggressively gay-coded. I know. As it went on, they became, like, less and less subtle. Were these subtle? To straight people. What's wrong with straight people? I don't know. Are they blind? (laughs) That explains a lot. The article I read, because I did read that, (laughs) said that a major factor in all of these, like, 19... 40s to 1950s personal ads were that they were just desperate to talk to anyone. <laughs> they were sad, lonely gays. Oh, there's, a, there's a few qu- quotes which just like, would like to hear from all. Will reply to any male, <laughs> male, male. With the different spelling. Any age or race. Will respond to males within a radius of a hundred miles. So just anyone. 100 miles, that's pretty far to drive for a hookup. Exactly. But when you're that lonely. Especially with like a 1950s car. Sam, they'll do anything for love. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Thank you. Besides that, Lonely Hearts Clubs formed where it was basically like these online app but in real life so they would accept ads from their members and you would like pay to join and then they would like put out the magazine and you would be like oh that looks interesting very that was very popular and then things continued to get weirder so 
in the 1990s. So it was a little bit more acceptable to be gay. Mm-hmm. So now there were personal ads asking for reproductive partners. Oh. They were asking for someone to donate eggs or sperm so that they could have children. That's kind of sweet. I know. But that's new. And then eventually we get to Match.com in the 1990s. Gross. I know. And we're essentially over with the age of personal ads. Now, a couple other things. Why would this even need to be a thing at all? Well, that's what happens when you lock women up and keep them and confine them to the domestic sphere. It means they don't get to meet people. And a lot of the times, you know, you would meet someone through your family. But when you move to the big city, your family's not there. And what are you going to do? Talk to people? Absolutely not. (laughs) That's why we have Tinder. (laughs) Exactly. Now, Ellen, do you very quickly want to tell our listeners why you got into personal ads? Well, as always, I decided that I I had a fleeting thought about an activity. And this week was dating. So I googled dating, which led me to the history of dating, which got me here, and then I got distracted. (laughs) You also sent me a message last week that was just like, Sam, what is an example of a personal ad? And I was (laughs) like, no, shoot, sorry, you asked me what my personal ad would sound like. And I was like, can I have an example? And you were like, that's why I asked you. (laughs) I mean, what was I going to do? Provide context? Of course not. Because then I looked up examples and wrote one for you. Because I am a good friend who does what I'm asked. <laughs> and it was great. And I forgot what I said, but I'm going to look because I feel like people deserve to know. And you didn't claim to collect photos of physical activities. No, because... Like, I literally just googled personal ads and then, like, read the first two Google images and was like, that's enough information for me to write my own. So you gotta do more of a deep dive. No, because I knew that's what you were doing. (laughs) Why do we text so much? I don't know. So, because there's been such a long, sordid history of personal ads, there have been some general observations over the kind of things that certain types of people post. So men tend to ask for women who are younger because of course they do. And they're also usually very particular about like uh, physical characteristics. Meanwhile, women will place more of an importance on financial and uh, psychological characteristics. And with gay ads, so after the 80s, There was a lot of emphasis on health, which you know why. It's AIDS. AIDS is why. But I found my personal ad. Okay, do you want to read it, Sam? Yeah. Okay. I wrote Lady, 23 years, active, friendly, and learned, enjoys outings about town and reading at home, seeking a companion of similar age. With No context, that's what I got. (laughs) And it was great! Thank you. I just want praise. 
And then I took that and I wrote my own. Do you want to read it? I'll read my own. Lady, 22 years, feminist, cat lover, and sword wielder. Then I just copied yours. It's <laughs> like, what else is important about me? Swords, cats, feminism. Done. <laughs> I feel like you shouldn't lie in your personal ad, though, and you said you enjoy outings about town. I can go out town. Sometimes. <laughs> On Wednesday night, specifically. You have to go out town if you're gonna go find books. <laughs> Well, I guess now with Amazon you don't. But, like, then you have to support Amazon. So it's a lesser of two evils. Okay, I'm sure you were saying something before I interrupted you. I don't know. Ads posted by lesbians typically value personal characteristics like, you know, humor, intelligence. And they're less likely to include descriptions of their own physical characteristics. Meanwhile, ads placed by gay men also place an important on physical attractiveness, similar to heterosexual men. And they also, apparently, will have a greater age range acceptable for (laughs) hookups than for those seeking long-term relationships. Which I guess sounds true for most people. Honestly, same. Any questions, Sam? I don't (laughs) think so. Is that the end? Yeah, I think we're about done here. Okay. There's not much more we can do after that. I want to learn more about gay personal ads. Oh, okay. Let's do that. Actually, no. But offline, I want to learn more about gay personal ads. Well, you have an article. You know how many research papers I read? You can read this one article. You know what? I read a lot of academic writing. I can't read anymore. It's barely academic. We'll see. Maybe I'll pick at it. You want to hear a quote from this article? I do. There were different types of introductions in these personal ads, including cheerful greetings, such as hi, or hey, you big, heavy-hung black dudes. And they did it. What? And that was hobbyists? Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry, this was, this was in the 70s. 70s okay, so were wild. Like, openly gay people being like, I want the D. Got it. Exactly. I needed that context. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the 50s were hidden behind, you know, the physical activities. Imagine if someone could be like, hey, heavily hung black dudes, and like say it was something about hobbyists. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, what do you mean? I was just talking about their birdhouses being hung on the branches heavily or something like that. <laughs> I absolutely cannot. What did I learn today? What did you learn today, Ellen? (laughs) Julia Child invented shark repellent. (laughs) Julia Child is a queen. The world did not deserve her. She is the reason that World War II was not defeated by sharks. (laughs) Julia Child pretty much lived out the best part of a spy thriller. Sam, did you learn anything today? I learned about gay personal ads and that they were amazing. (laughs) And that you can do fun uh, hyperfixation sometimes (laughs) and not make me feel bad. Okay. Now, if you write us a five-star review, we'll send you a sticker. Just send us a screenshot of the review. And you'll get my eternal love and thanks, as well as a sticker in the mail. 
That sounds like a good deal, Sam. It's a pretty good deal. You should go for it. (laughs) Additionally, if you'd like to find us on the interwebs, you can find us at Chaos Podcast on Instagram, at underscore Chaos Podcast on Twitter. If you have episode ideas or just want to tell us your thoughts, you can email us at chaospodcast21 at gmail.com. And you can find us wherever you find your podcasting. We hope you enjoy the chaos. And safe travels. Bye-bye.